good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll catch up with the CEO of the Harris Theater as it prepares to celebrate its 20th anniversary season. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to talk about Griffin Theater's latest production. Later in the show, local film writer Janet Arvia will join me to chat about the Academy Awards. The 95th Oscar ceremony is set for tonight. And WDCB's Leslie Karras has an interesting story about a local jazz musician's mission to draw attention to the work of songwriter Irene Higginbotham. That's all coming up. First, I did want to say a special thank you to all the listeners who made a donation last week during our spring pledge drive. Everyone who called in or went online during the arts section last Sunday made a really big difference, and I can't say thank you enough. Your support is much appreciated. The Harris Theater for Music and Dance unveiled its 2023-24 season this past week. It's a special season for the Downtown Theater as it prepares to celebrate a milestone anniversary. It's hard to believe that just 20 years ago, Millennium Park didn't exist, the Harris didn't exist. This is Harris Theater President and CEO, Lori Diamond. Over the course of 20 years, having been a home for 12 local companies starting out, and grown to really be home to 25 plus local companies on an annual basis, as well as bringing in artists from around the world to perform on our stage. And I think that's our uniqueness, is we are both a home for Chicago artists and the work that they're creating and their growth and evolution. And we are also a Chicago home to artists from around the world. I recently caught up with Diamond backstage at the Harris Theater to talk about the upcoming season and the venue's evolution over the years. The Harris Theater opened in 2003 with a mission to fill a void in Chicago's downtown cultural landscape. There was a lot of intent around the building of this facility. It, we met with resident companies in the early days before the building was even built to talk about their audience capacity and what it would look like to have a venue that they could grow into. So, you know, obviously prior to the Harris Theater opening, the smallest venue in downtown Chicago is 3,500 seats. So we're 1,500 seats. And the way that the theater is designed very smartly is that with a stadium-style seating, even with 500 people, you feel it feels nice and full. It feels like you're kind of enveloped um, in the space. And it really, for so many of our companies, starting out with an audience of 500 but having the opportunity to grow has been a big piece of the way that we have interacted with our companies over the years. The upcoming anniversary season will pay tribute to its origins with a special kickoff event that highlights the talents of the many resident companies that call the Harris Theater home. We're kicking off the 20th season in September of 2023. Our original opening date was November 8th of 2003. We're kicking it off in similar fashion with a festival of our resident companies. So all of those companies that I've mentioned, we really wanted to celebrate their legacy and that mark that they've had on both Millennium Park and the Harris Theater. And so that's going to be the kickoff to a very busy and very exciting season ahead. 
I think that's on September 9th. What does that night look like? It's still in development. Okay. We're having, obviously, 25 companies giving, giving everyone the right space and the right artistic vision where you know we're bringing all of their teams into play um, well it'll also be an opportunity for us to showcase all of our community partners as well so it will actually be in a festival format of a full day so we will spill outside of the Harris Theater's four walls and do a bit of a Millennium Park takeover so we'll have programming on the Pritzker stage on the Great Lawn on the Granger Plaza around Cloudgate um, the Chase Promenade Plaza will likely be activated with all those community partner organizations so it will truly be a Harris Theater um, citywide Millennium Park takeover. <laughs> so that's that's the kickoff to the, the season that just came out. We talked about the logistics of where the Harris Theater fits in size-wise. As far as genre or type of artistic expression, what fits well in the Harris Theater? There is something for everyone, or everything for someone, I guess. Um, really, our next season is everything from original classic composition, new interpretations of classical works, contemporary dance, classical dance, world music, global international dance companies. It, it truly runs the gamut. I'm sure you have like programming people and then you're involved as well. Do you have like a, a mission that guides the, the programming or is that something that evolves from year to year that maybe something that you might not have thought would have been on a Harris Theater stage a couple of years ago now makes sense? Absolutely. It, it is ever evolving and I think that's part of, you know, what is great about having all these resident companies is we're seeing what's, what's being created and put out there by local artists and we feel this amazing excitement around being able to do things that aren't being presented anywhere else in Chicago. Things that are unique and that have not been experienced by our audiences that are not replicative or duplicate of what our companies are always already doing or our peers or colleagues across the city are doing. And it's amazing the endless, interesting, exciting works that are happening all over the world. And we, you know, we take it as you know, a huge opportunity for us to be ambassadors for Chicago. We're bringing these artists to bring their imprint and their their culture and their practice and their art forms to Chicago. But we also, while they're here, give them the opportunity to connect with our local arts organizations, our community partners. Um, and so we try to find artists that are going to have a spark or connection with Chicago art audiences, our local companies, or to leave an imprint that's never been on Chicago before. If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek, and I'm talking with Harris Theater President and CEO Lori Diamond about the venue's 20th anniversary. So let's talk about some of the things coming up in the 23-24 season. We can't cover everything. People can go to HarrisTheaterChicago.org for a complete schedule. So you have the, the resident celebration kicks things off. We talked about that in September. I also saw one of the first concerts is... Uh, Marquise Hill, and he's like one of my favorite uh, jazz musicians. Uh, we've been talking about bringing Marquise for a while, and luck had it that the schedule and timing worked out. We're super stoked to have him on our Harris Theater stage. It's his first time uh, being presented on the Harris Theater stage, and such an awesome way to kick off our Mix It Six series. And the Mix It Six, from what I understand, that's aimed at like a, maybe a younger audience. Yeah, our Mix It Six is really about having a fun hour-long concert experience 
usually post work it's from you know six to seven you come you grab a cocktail mingle in the lobby see an hour-long concert and then the artists always come out after so it's it's a really fun kind of meet and greet experience and way to to celebrate the artist after the concert as well I saw in November you have a program titled uh, Jungle Book Reimagined. What can you tell me about this? So Jungle Book Reimagined is a project with Akram Khan Company. Akram has had a long-standing relationship with the Harris Theatre. We actually first presented his work with English National Ballet and we brought his Giselle, which worldwide acclaim, a huge, huge project and production. but. We've continued that relationship with Akram and deepened that relationship, and this is a really great opportunity to bring his company to perform this new reimagined version of Jungle Book. It was always a dream of his to go back to that story. He was in a production of Jungle Book when he was like eight, I believe. And ever since then, you know, through his voice, through his language of movement, um, Kothic dance, he brings to life the Jungle Book in a very, very new new perspective. Um, stunning design elements and obviously just an incredible um, vocabulary of movement that is very unique to Akram. And then about a year from now, this ensemble from New Zealand will be coming to the Harris Theatre stage. Yeah, in March we'll be bringing uh, the ensemble Black Grace to Chicago. Um, this will be their first time ever performing in Chicago and they are in an an incredible New Zealand-based company who is rooted both in contemporary dance but also in classic Maori and Samoan traditional dance forms. So you see this really interesting um, interwoven connection between tradition and ritual and movement and it being terp- interpreted on new uh, new bodies, on new um, a new generation of artists. And it's a really amazing company. They'll be with us both for um, an evening performance as well as a family performance. And a huge part of what they do too is um, engaging with community wherever they go. They really want to make sure that they are sharing that cult- those cultural elements and, and opening up um, their practice to local practitioners as well as to the audience. For something like that, is that something... Um, so those are two that, that stuck out to me. There's a, a few other we were talking off mic that I mentioned to you, but curious if there's something you wanted to, to highlight. I know they're all your favorites, all the things on the schedule, but is there something that you're particularly interested to see how Chicago audiences uh, respond to? Picking a favorite child is impossible, especially when you when you have five series of programming. I could talk about Dubé Ensemble, Jasmine Horn, bringing back New York City Ballet. They were the very first company we ever presented. So our first time we actually self-presented was in 2006. And, and we took this bold risk of bringing this giant ballet company. And so it's the first time that the company has come back in 18 years. And they're under new leadership. It's their 75th anniversary. So bringing both their classical rep as well as a really interesting um, series of mixed rep, which really represents the company now too, I think is a really exciting experience. Sir John Elliott Gardner is a fan favorite in Chicago um, performing on the Harris stage. That's going to be a tremendous engagement for us in the fall. It's impossible to pick a favorite, but I think, like I said, there's something for everyone. And really, I hope people become culturally curious as they see the season to see that there's so much unique programming that's happening and to maybe dabble outside of what they're familiar with or what they've heard of before and and kind of take that gamble on just coming to experience something exceptional. 
So we were talking off mic, and you mentioned that you started as uh, CEO in uh, March of 2020. That sticks out in a lot of our minds uh, for some reason. How did the pandemic affect the Harris Theater? Yeah, it was a complicated time. I was previously held the role of COO and stepped in in March of 2020, actually, after the um, passing of our past president CEO. She had um, breast cancer and passed on March 3rd of 2020. And so I stepped in at that time and obviously was a very, you know, my first week on the job, I closed the doors of the theater. Um, but I think, you know, in these moments, when you, when you, go to the core of your mission. When I look at this building that we had here at the North End of Millennium Park, that is a home to local companies. It's this place for other artists to come visit. You know, our first step forward was to say, how can we all stay connected and what support can we provide to those local companies and stay connected to these global artists? And so we built a virtual platform like a lot of folks did, but our virtual platform was a place for all of those. It was our state, almost a replication of our stage, but in virtual sense. Um, So really being able to stay connected with those companies, um, you know, that really, it it kept that energy and those relationships going. It was definitely a time where we all leaned in to support one another and to really wade through these challenges of not only weathering the pandemic, but then reopening and you know, building back audience, building back that stamina of audiences getting off their couch and coming to see performances. It's still a journey. We're still, we're still on that road to recovery. Um, but it's, you know, I couldn't be any more grateful to have a network of colleagues like I have in our resident companies um, to be navigating this with. You're currently then in your... Uh... 2022-23 season, how has this season gone as we've this year feels, uh, the past 12 months feel a little closer to normal? Yeah, they definitely feel closer to normal. The, the energy with which audiences are coming back, um, you know, there's some programming It still surprises us that, you know, certain nights of the week are a bit challenging. Fridays, I think across the board, we're hearing that um, have been challenging for folks, but the overall consensus has been people are excited to be back. They're excited about the work that's coming out of the Harris Theater, both you know our work and, and the work of our companies. And it's, um, you know, I feel incredibly optimistic about the future because I do think there's such a strength in the work that we're doing and, and the strength in the artistic community in Chicago. And we just need to get everybody to keep coming see things, come experience things and and explore the arts. That was Lori Diamond. She's the president and CEO of the Harris Theater for Music and Dance. You can check out the upcoming season for yourself at harristheaterchicago.org. What is he doing? This is Jasmia Horn. She's one of the artists that will be performing at the Harris Theater next season. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the arts section every Sunday on WDCB, thank you. But also check out the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the stories you hear on the show. Check out the arts section. Org. And if you have a question, comment, or suggestion about the show, you can reach me at gzydek at wdcb.org or find me on Instagram or Twitter with the handle at OnAirGary. 
But still lots more to come on the show today. The Dueling Critics will be with me here in a minute uh, with a new review. And then later in the show, I'll be talking uh, about the Oscars. The 95th Academy Awards ceremony is tonight. Any thoughts on who's going to win Best Picture? It looks like Everything Everywhere All at Once is a pretty strong favorite to bring home that top prize. But you never know, there could be an upset. Hopefully no slaps this year, but uh, maybe some upsets. Local arts and culture writer Janet Arvia will join me later in the hour to talk all things Oscars. Thanks for being with me this Sunday morning. And you are listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Gary. Despite its title, Griffin Theater's new play, Heisenberg, The Uncertainty Principle, is not about Nobel Prize-winning German physicist Werner Heisenberg and his celebrated theory that the position and velocity of an object cannot be measured exactly at the same time. While light on quantum physics, I'm guessing the work dives into the unpredictable nature of human interactions. Surely the dueling critics will fill us in. Written by English playwright Simon Stevens, this production is directed by Nate Cohen. Carrie, we'll start with you. What did you think? Well, this is a show I admired in, wait for it, theory more than practice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I have loved many of Simon Stevens' past plays, but I have to say, this one, yes, it is more about romance than physics, certainly. Uh, The story certainly references directly and reflects Heisenberg's principle, which, as you said, is that we cannot know both the position and speed of a particle, such as a photon or electron, with perfect accuracy. And the more we try to nail down the position, the less we know about its speed. I think in human relationship terms, Stephen's play is suggesting that the closer two people get to each other, perhaps the less they can understand. Uh, But still, they try. In the play Heisenberg, we meet 40-something American Georgie, who is a talkative-seeming free spirit, and Alex, a 70-something butcher. They meet in a park in London, which is the city where they both live. Alex is British, and as I mentioned, Georgie's American. In the first scene, apparently right before the play begins, Georgie has impulsively walked up behind Alex, kissed him on the neck, and when the play begins, she's explaining how he looked like her dead husband from the back. But as with a lot of things with Georgie, we find out that's not exactly true. And from there, we're off to the races with what, although I think there are some really lovely moments, ultimately to me felt like a fairly uninvolving opposites attract kind of romance. I really, really, really wanted to connect with these characters more than I did, but I found myself feeling restless and not quite sure what I was supposed to be making of this uh, of the relationship as it unfolds. Um, I'm very curious to hear what you have to think about it, Jonathan, because we were at the same show, but I was just kind of not not able to, uh, you know, fully lock in as I would have liked, I think. Well, you know, Carrie, it's, it's remarkable. You know, you, you and I have personalities that are decidedly different, except for we both like to talk. <laughs> uh, and yet it is so often that we have the same gut reaction to the shows we see, and then we try to, then we try to justify them. Uh, and I, I'm in agreement with you, and I think I understand why? Now, first of all, I want to confirm, and it's worth emphasizing that Alex and Georgie are an odd match by any measurements, whether quantum physics or, or <laughs> measurements right. of romance. As you said, Alex is, uh, they say, he says he's 75. He's never been married. He's a butcher. He's quiet. 
he is alone most of the time and set in his routines. And Georgie is a you know an American who talks too much, has a, a broken marriage in her past, a son she hasn't seen in years. And when they meet, Georgie immediately immediately invades Alex's personal space and initially against his will. And now what happens next is is well, it's uncertain. But they proceed by <laughs> stages to see each other again, to a dinner date, to going to bed together. They break up, they reconnect, and it finally ends. We don't know how many weeks or months later. It finally ends with the two of them in the United States having a picnic in New Jersey where they have come as a couple to try to find Georgie's son. Now, what happens is uncertain because playwright Stevens chooses to show us only the locations of Alex and Georgie, who are his subatomic particles, and he does not choose to show us the speed or the pathways by which they move from location to location. Hence, the play is a visualization of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. We see Alex and Georgie at square A, square B, C, and so on, but we don't see how they move between them or how quickly. And I must tell you that, like you, I didn't find this terribly satisfying because it was an intellectual journey rather than an emotional journey, an exercise in play construction, if you will, very clever, but more that than an exercise in character development. Right. And I also felt, to some extent, uh, Stevens wrote this play, I believe, in 2015. It felt as if he was still in the grip of the, you know, I think it was still fairly popular at that point, what they've called the manic pixie dream girl trope with Georgie, you know, the person, the impulsive, wacky, off-the-cuff woman who has to bring, you know, a, a more stodgy or shut-down male out of his shell. I mean, I think he's playing with that a little bit. I have to say, and this, I don't think this is the fault of the actors, Laura Coover, who plays Georgie, Scott Anderson as Alex, but particularly in the case of Georgie, I found the character as written, to be grating after a while. Um, The ceaseless need to grab attention, I suspect part of it is that I have known a few people like Georgie in my life, and they do wear you out, you know, the the need to always be the center of attention. The, the, shall we say, somewhat slippery relationship with with the facts of their lives, (laughs) the the veiled ways in which they seem to want things from you without ever actually telling you directly what they are. Those are all things that are very much present in Georgie. And yes, those are all human characteristics, but I think this maybe ties in a little bit with what you were saying, Jonathan, because they are presented more to highlight this sort of intellectual exercise, we don't get enough of an investment in their deeper humanity to really be able to overlook those sorts of surface irritations, or at least I was not able to. <laughs> well, we, we do come to understand both their personalities with some depth, but it's all in the form of exposition rather right. than rather than dramatic playing forward of the story. We understand because we are told that Alex was terribly hurt in uh, a, a love relationship early on, a woman he wanted to marry who broke it off with him, and his his reaction was to retreat into isolation and silence for the rest of his life. We understand that. We understand that Georgie uses her assertive personality to hide her insecurities and her own emotional hurts. But that's not the same thing as seeing the journey, which actually brings them together, which is what you 
precisely what you have said, and I am, I am agreeing. I, I also agree that that my disappointment is has nothing to do with the direction by Nate Cohn or the um, the actors in this production. Laura Coover is Georgie, and Scott Anderson, who is not seventy five years old, <laughs> is Alex. They are both affable and appealing performers. But like you, I feel that it's actually not there on the page. Yeah, yeah, they're they're being asked to play attitudes in some ways more than than revelation. I think yes, that's exactly what you're getting at. There's exposition, but it it doesn't really seem to be coming out of the circumstances of the moment. It just feels like, and this is the point when I have to tell you this in order for us to move on to the next scene. <laughs> and and you know it's 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 possible, of course, for people of, of who are as different as as Georgie and Alex to get together. I'm not saying that that's not a believable scenario, but you have to create the circumstances. And in over, I think it's about six scenes in 90 minutes, I just didn't feel like I was invested enough in what was happening with them to buy into that. And so I felt myself at several points feeling pulled out, even as I wanted to be pulled in. So right. Yes, exactly. You put it exactly. Perhaps this is more of Schrodinger's play. It's both there and not there at the same time. <laughs> Just like a subatomic particle, <laughs> the moment the moment you could see it, it's gone. You know? Right, right. And I think it is. I mean, it, I understand why Griffin would pick this because Stevens's plays, of certain, particularly with Steep Theater over the years, they've done several U.S. Yeah. premieres of his work. He's got a wonderful relationship with them. He's, you know, he he's, uh, he almost feels like an honorary Chicago playwright at this point because he's done here so much. But this one felt like a bit of a misfire for me. Yeah. I mean, not not terrible, but just disappointing given what I have come to expect from his work in the past. Yeah. Uh, and also, from the, the usual standard uh, of interesting work that Griffin uh, Theater does. Um, now, I have a question for you about the physical production, Carrie. Now, mm-hmm. I, it's a physically efficient production with relatively sparse production design by Garrett Bell. Mm-hmm. It features two cleverly utilized rolling laboratory tables that are moved into a variety of configurations and and used for everything from the counter in Alex's uh, butcher shop to the bed that they inhabit together. But there's also a decorative ceiling piece of scroll work, which I couldn't figure out. Right. Which, which looks yeah, vaguely I... South Asian. Tell me, yeah. Carrie, what was it? I really... You not know. I didn't. I and mean, you also they noticed there were some concentric circles that were sort of drawn on the floor of the stage. I wasn't sure if that was supposed to be because at first I thought, well, maybe they're in a train station and this is, you know, some kind of ornate ceiling effect for that. But no, it's a park. Yeah, I, I other than it being visually interesting, but interesting and distracting together are not necessarily a great thing. And particularly for a play that's trying to really bring, you know, where I felt the problem was that it was not bringing me into the heart of this relationship. And when it's only two characters, that's a problem. Yeah, I, I, w- I confess that I also was puzzled. And I do feel, even with the sparseness of it, sometimes the staging got a little busy with, with switching over when I felt like maybe there could have been more just to keep us in these moments. Like, I felt that might have been one of the reasons that I was losing momentum with it, is that the scene changes themselves kind of gave me an excuse to, you know, pull back out and then have to, you know, be pulled back in, so. 
Well, all right. So, <laughs> the bottom line is, you don't know what it was either. <laughs> no, I don't know what it was either. It was, it was lovely. It was, well, you know, it was, it was lovely. lovely. It was a lovely piece of work, but I'm not clear from what happened in the play what it was supposed to, you know. Maybe the, the scroll work, which looked, you know, kind of like 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 uh, uh, elaborate Hindu or or even uh, Arabic calligraphy. And maybe the circles on the floors were supposed to be representation of the random movement of subatomic particles. I guess we'd have I to ask know. the designer. <laughs> I'm taking a stab here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but the fact that we're thinking so much about that, and you know, I think Maybe that's also indicative of the fact that that became a source of a focus for us when I, when we're not necessarily as focused on the journey of these characters. If that makes sense, I, I don't. In other words, I don't know that it would have distracted me had I been more inclined to feel engaged, engaged and yeah. and, and, yeah. and more um, invested in what was happening scene to scene with these two people. Good point. I have to mention that there is a, a Chicago-based. 17-piece big band called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Players. <laughs> I've, I've had them on the show before, and they're actually playing tonight, uh, March 12th, about six and a half miles uh, from the Raven Theater. So, yeah, if you're... Oh, well, that's a nice little tie-in. If you're, sure. <laughs> yeah. if you're looking to make it a Heisenberg night, um, <laughs> Griffin Theater's Heisenberg, the Uncertainty Principle, continues at the Raven Theater through March 26th. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're, you're welcome, welcome, Gary. Welcome, Gary. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the arts section. No good man. Been on a no good a Chicago-based band leader's quest to learn more about an accomplished but little-known musician and songwriter inspired an ambitious project that produced an album and a special live performance earlier this year. Because of vocalist Christy Bennett's efforts, more people now know the name Irene Higginbotham. WDCB's Leslie Karras has the story. When she presented her tribute to composer Irene Higginbotham at a jazz club earlier this year, vocalist Christy Bennett let her band perform an extended instrumental, while typewritten cards showing song titles scrolled one by one on a screen above her. Christy had instructed her band to take as many choruses as they liked, for the tunes flashing across the screen represented the cache of songs that Bennett had found at the Library of Congress, and they would take a while to get through. When I went there, not everything is digitized yet. Not even the card catalog is completely digitized. So what you can see online is just a little taste of what actually exists there. So I put in the slip to see anything that they had by Irene Higginbotham and was delighted when they came out with like a folder about an inch thick of just sheet music by her. That visit to Washington, D.C. was the centerpiece of a years-long project on the life and music of Higginbotham by Christy Bennett, culminating in Bennett's recording released last fall entitled Good Morning Heartache, the music of Irene Higginbotham. No good man, loving on a no good play, never treats me as he should. She was most active during the 40s. She worked with a lot of huge name artists. Her uncle was J.C. Higginbotham, world famous trombonist, and she had great connections and was really, really talented 
and even got her songs in the hands of artists like Billie Holiday while she was alive, and yet nobody knows her name today. Bennett's deep dive into Higginbotham's work began with a quest for music for her band, Fume, to play during their weekly gigs at Rogers Park Social. The unexpected twists and turns of Higginbotham's tunes made them stand out. Her music won the band's admiration and fueled Bennett's curiosity to learn more about the artist and her work. Her love songs are never just straightforward, I'm in love. They're always like, I'm in love, but I kind of don't want to be in love, and it's terrible, but it's wonderful. From what I've gathered, love was not an easy thing for her in life. It's mad, 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 love is the craziest thing I ever knew. It's bad, 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 love is a fickle thing that seldom ever is true. Irene Higginbotham was born in 1918 and grew up in Atlanta. She began playing piano and writing tunes as a young girl, and by the age of 20, she had moved to New York City, where her career took off with the help of her uncle, the trombonist J.C. Higginbotham. She was immediately connected with some of the big names, especially black artists. She was a black woman. And her uncle, J.C., connected her with Louis Armstrong right away so that Harlem Stomp was recorded by Louis Armstrong just a couple of years after she got to New York. It was like right off the bat. They tell me up Harlem way. They got a brand new sender. And I believe it's in the groove. In 1941, Higginbotham songs were being recorded by the likes of Fats Waller, Benny Goodman with Peggy Lee, and Nat King Cole. She had the connections that you would have thought made her more famous. This will make you laugh. I stake my dreams on you. And she ended up meeting a lot of huge names in the business. Milk Gabler ended up connecting her with Billie Holiday. He connected her because he brought her music into a session with Nat King Cole. This Will Make You Laugh is a tune that she wrote as well. I took a chance on the one romance And vowed it couldn't miss But I should have known to never judge a hard a kid. By 1944, Higginbotham's music was popular enough to earn her membership in the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, or ASCAP. The same year, a collection of boogie-woogie songs she edited described her as having written more than 1,000 tunes. One connection led to another, and inevitably you would have thought that she would become like the next Cole Porter, but sadly, she did not. Her output and her connections made her obscurity all the more baffling. Now I mean an evil. Don't you mess around with me. I think she's a, a great example of the barriers that existed for women and for black women in particular. The fact that no one except for the black papers wrote about what she did. And she was very well versed. Her father wrote for the Atlanta Daily World in Atlanta. So she knew how to get her music into different publications, but 
all these barriers still existed. And until you had that kind of notoriety, it's hard to get any farther. The year 1946 would represent the apex of Higginbotham's career. In January, Billie Holiday would record Higginbotham's signature tune. Good morning, honey, you old gloomy sight. Good morning, honey, thought we said goodbye last night. It wasn't an immediate success for Billie Holiday, but the tune's haunting quality would attract singers for decades to come and it would figure prominently in the biopic Lady Sings the Blues, starring Diana Ross. It's long been regarded as a love song, with lyrics written by Irvin Drake. But Christy Bennett has raised questions about both of those assumptions after speaking at length with Irene's relatives about her personal and professional life. Irene really struggled with alcohol, and particularly in the years that followed this tune's release. And her cousin, Joe Orange, who was a great trombonist in his own right, has speculated that this was actually about her struggle with alcohol rather than a love story. Stop haunting me now Can't shake you no Just leave me Irvin Drake is listed as the lyricist and has been interviewed many times and taken credit completely for the lyrics. I don't feel like it matches his other lyrics as well as it matches Irene's other lyrics. It very much sounds like her perspective on things. I'm sure he was involved in one way or another. There's also a producer that's listed as having something to do with writing the song and he had nothing to do with writing the song. In the latter part of the 1940s, Higginbotham's songs were recorded by Duke Ellington, Woody Herman, and Dinah Washington. By the 1950s, however, Higginbotham's most prolific songwriting years were behind her. She pursued other work, but continued to compose tunes for the remainder of her life. Higginbotham died at the age of 70 in 1988. For her own Higginbotham project with Fumé, Christy Bennett chose a mix of songs recorded by well-known and lesser-known artists and included some that had never been recorded at all. One of those was a tune that Bennett discovered while researching the archive at Brigham Young University, and she decided to record it with her band Fumé. It must be you that's got me saying I feel so blue away from you it must be you, no use denying I always find you're on my mind Can't sleep a wink, can't even walk straight Can't even talk straight, cause I can't breathe It must be you that's got me crying You know it's true Another previously unrecorded gem is one that Bennett found during her research at the Library of Congress, and she decided to include this one on her new CD as well. That weatherman a man keeps changing all the time. He'll change from hot to cold, could he be getting old, oh no. His youthful charms makes love fair and 
Christy Bennett says she is continuing her research into songwriters whose work she believes should be better known, including that of the Chicago composer Bernice Petcare. So she wrote Close Your Eyes and Lullaby of the Leaves, but she also wrote just a ton of music. So I plan to travel back to the Library of Congress to see what they've got of hers. And then University of North Texas has some of her music as well. Um, so a similar, similar sort of project, getting her music out there and hopefully getting more musicians playing it. For the arts section, I'm Leslie Karras. To think that fate could ever bring that sadistic thing called love. Thanks to Leslie for that piece. You can find more information about Christy Bennett's work over at fumijazz.com. That's F-U-M-E-E jazz.com. And you're tuned into the arts section. My name's Gary Zydek. The 95th Academy Awards ceremony is set to take place this evening in Los Angeles. Millions of people from all over the globe will be watching as the film community celebrates itself. Joining me to talk about all things Oscars is Janet Arvia, arts and culture editor for Rebellious Magazine. Thanks for coming back to the show. My pleasure. So every award season is different. Sometimes we see wire-to-wire favorites. Other times it's truly a coin flip because two nominees are neck and neck. And then there's also years where we see momentum shifts, where dark horses emerge and presumed favorites fade as the Oscar voting period comes to a close. This year probably fits into that latter category when it comes to the Best Picture race. If you would have asked me in November who the favorite for Best Picture was, I probably would have said The Fablemans, not because it was my favorite film, but because it seemed to check a lot of boxes. Steven Spielberg's film seemed tailor-made for awards season. But that narrative has gradually changed in a film that critics loved, but didn't seem like a serious contender for Best Picture for a good part of the year is now what I would consider a a pretty heavy favorite, and I'm talking about everything, everywhere, all at once. Janet, what are your thoughts on the the Best Picture race? Best Picture, I think, is is pretty much a done deal (laughs) with everything, everywhere, all at once. Did you get that sense, though, too? I mean, that came out almost a year ago. It came out in in April. Critics loved it, but I don't know that I thought it was going to be a Best Picture winner until maybe the past couple of months. Yeah, it's had a, like a, a late surge. And actually, if the Oscars were held in February, I think the Best Actress would be different, too. Yeah, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but it's definitely peaking at the right time. There's momentum uh, when it comes to awards season, and the New York Times actually just published a really great article about uh, Oscar campaigning and all the money that that goes into it. I did want to say right now, if there was going to be kind of a a secondary uh, choice, if everything, everywhere all at once didn't win, it almost feels like All Quiet on the Western Front would be the the next alternative because that did so well at the, the BAFTA Awards. I agree. And I will say that the longest odds of all the Best Picture nominees belongs to the indie film Triangle of Sadness. I'm really happy the the film got nominated because I think it's extremely clever and I, I hope more people check it out. Let's slide into the acting categories. 
it feels like uh, Ki Hui Kwan from Everything Everywhere All at Once is a is a lock for Best Supporting Actor. Would you agree? I think so. Yeah. Great. Com- He's all but swept. I yeah. Mean, except the Baftas. Yeah. Best Supporting Actress is is harder to predict. Uh, Angela Bassett, Jamie Lee Curtis, and Carrie Condon all seem like viable choices. Yeah, this one is a is a difficult category for sure. Well, I think if Michelle Williams had gone into this category for the Fablemans, it would have been one of the easiest categories to predict. She would have swept the entire season, but she went into lead instead. Right. Yeah, those are decisions so, Yeah, that are made months ago. Okay, so we got a toss-up in Best Supporting Actress, and then in the lead categories, it feels like Michelle Yeoh is a pretty strong favorite for Best Actress, though Kate Blanchett remains a serious contender, and you, you reference this category, so if, if the Oscars were a month ago, who do you feel would have won? Kate Blanchett would have won. Okay. And she still may win, <laughs> but it seems like the tide has turned in Michelle Yeoh's favor. What did you think of Tar? Um, I liked a lot of it. I think it needed a little bit of a. It needed a little bit of editing. <laughs> oh yeah, long. yeah, it did run long for yeah, sure. Yeah, and, and it didn't help that the first twenty-five minutes were like very slow before it really found its pace. And it, it's kind of like Padfield was almost sort of daring audiences to stay with him. I mean, <laughs> it, it began with end credits. So I was like, okay, what's this all about? Right. But the screenplay is very good. I, I like how it touched on um, identity politics and cancel culture. I think that gives it an edge that a lot of the other screenplays don't have or movies. I'm not a, a classical music fan by any stretch, but I, I cover classical music on the, the show. I cover all arts and culture. So I was really, I was getting into some of the, the early parts, but I said to my wife, a lot of people might be getting lost because it was like those early parts were kind of deeply entrenched in the classical music world. And if that's not something you're interested in, yeah, I could see you tuning out pretty early. Right. After, the, after it started with the end credits, and it, that was like five minutes of credits, I swear. Then it was like a 10-minute real-time interview about classical music. And um, I thought, I thought, oh, this is going to alienate a lot of people, you know, before you get to the good stuff in the film. Well, since we teased it up so much, let's listen to a, a clip. This is Kate Blanchett in Tar. Time is the thing. Uh-huh. Time is, is the essential piece of uh, interpretation. You cannot start without me. See, I start the clock. Now, my left hand, it shapes, but my right hand, the second hand, marks time and moves it forward. However, unlike a clock, sometimes my second hand stops, which means that time stops. Now, the illusion is that, like you, I'm responding to the orchestra in real right. time, making right. the decision about the right moment to restart the thing or reset it or throw time out the window altogether. The reality is that right from the very beginning, I know precisely what time it is and the exact moment that you and I will arrive at our destination together. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Janet Arvia, Arts and Culture Editor for Rebellious Magazine. We're chatting about the Oscars, which are tonight. And if we move over to the Best Actor category, it's also what I feel is a two-person race. Elvis versus the Whale. Austin Butler and Brendan Fraser seem to be 
neck and neck. Well, I keep wishing we would um, have a repeat from 2003, and that's when Jack Nicholson was in About Schmidt and Daniel Day-Lewis was in Gangs of New York, and the entire award season they kept splitting the awards, just kind, you know, similar to how Butler and Frazier are doing. And then come Oscar night, Adrian Brody won for The Pianist. Okay. So I'm kind of hoping (laughs) that that will happen again this year and Colin Farrell will win. Oh, okay. It's wishful thinking. Yeah, I haven't heard heard that theory before, but yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. I was really impressed with probably the longest shot in the category, Paul Mescal, for his performance in yeah. After Sun. I was really happy that he was recognized with a, a nomination because that was such a small movie. But if we're picking who will win Best Actor, it's it's a tough call. I mean, Brendan Fraser, there's kind of this comeback narrative that the, the press has been running with. He's been a movie star for a long time and then disappeared, and then he makes this indie film. And so voters like a, a good comeback story. Yeah, I think... There's a couple of those comeback stories, though, this year. Yeah, for sure, with the Best Supporting Actor and then even right. ja- Jamie Lee Curtis, yeah. Um, and Angela Bassett, Angela, too. Yeah. I mean, it's not that she disappeared, but, you know, it's just kind of like to recognize her previous work as well. And that New York Times article really gets into, like, how much money and resources go into these campaigns that people at home might not even be thinking about, but they really are crafting these messages to try to win over voters. So if you hear an actor on a late night talk show repeat the same things, it's kind of like a a political candidate trying to hammer home his message. So they have Exactly. And I know Jamie Lee has been um, campaigning pretty fiercely. Well, they they all campaign. And, um, Michelle Yeoh got in a little bit of trouble for what she posted on her site because um, when you campaign, you're not supposed to mention your fellow nominee. Oh, okay. And she reposted something that mentioned that said Blanchett had two Oscars. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, this uh, well this this whole campaigning topic got renewed attention because uh, one of the Best Actress nominees, Andrea Riseborough, was nominated for this really small indie flick called To Leslie. And uh, and I was, I've was i been a big fan of Andrea Riseborough for a long time. I was a little surprised that she got the nomination, but I didn't think much of it. But there's a lot of reports about the campaigning that went on behind the scenes to, to get that nomination. Then all of a sudden, we started to see uh, you know more attention to what types of things were done to, to get the nomination. A lot of these studios have deep pockets, and they put in a ton of money to campaign for their actors or whoever. And... I mean, in one respect, the Andrea Riceboro nomination was refreshing because they did it not with money, but just word of mouth. The problem is that some, or and social media, and the problem is that some of the postings mentioned other nominees, which, you know, you're just not allowed to do. Right. It felt a a little coordinated in that, you know, you could tell there was some effort behind the scenes. It wasn't totally grassroots, but yeah, there wasn't. The movie definitely didn't have deep pockets for sure. Right. They were, yeah, instead of, they were having screenings at like celebrities' homes and things like that. But I don't think there should be anything wrong with that if you don't have the money to rent out theaters. This goes without saying, but everyone just also needs to keep in mind that it's just an awards show. Everything is subjective. There's uh, prestige involved with the Oscars, of course, but uh, the ceremony itself is just a long commercial for movies. 
it's fun to watch. Just because a movie or an actor is recognized tonight, that doesn't mean they're more worthy of something that you at home like. Right. I mean, I was actually thinking about, um, you know, when it comes to the category of best film, like, well, what, you know, the Academy has never defined what that means. What is best? I mean, we can guess what best performance means, but like best film, what, what is that? The most entertaining movie or the most right. thought provoking? Technical achievement, right? There's so many. Right. It's, is it, it's... right. Is it the most well crafted film or does it move you the most? Depending on how you define it, you know, isn't that slick or whatever? The best picture race can sometimes turn into a proxy war for maybe other issues. I just, you know, I think of past years where I don't know if the best film won, but there was just kind of like a, a feeling that this film deserves to win. And uh, yeah, it, well, that's what you get with I, I think with the actors too. Like you said, uh, Brandon Fraser hasn't worked in a while. Like why you shouldn't that shouldn't enter into your decision making of it should be what's on screen it is about just your performance it's not about other people watching it is it i mean right that's where we see like the crafting of yeah these campaigns right let's shift gears and if we look at best director as i mentioned at the top steven spielberg seemed like a, a favorite uh maybe a few months ago but now it would be shocking to see anyone but the daniels from everything everywhere all at once daniel kwan and daniel uh scheinert uh, they seem to be pretty clear favorites i agree and i think um when they won the dga that secured their win and i think we'll see a, a split among the uh, technical awards or we're not going to go through the whole the whole list but sometimes we'll see uh, in certain years like one film will just kind of dominate all those technical awards but this year top gun avatar all quiet on the western front i could see each of those films maybe taking uh, some of the different technical awards or even everything everywhere all at once picking up one or two of those yeah i think um everywhere will probably get editing i think top gun will get sound avatar visual effects i think i think everything everywhere is going to get costume a lot of people are predicting elvis but i i uh, or a uh, black I a, panther maybe i know but you know what here's my pet peeve it goes for visual effects for avatar and costume for black panther both of those won already Oh, okay. Like, these are the sequels. Right. To me, it's like, I think if you win, the sequel shouldn't be eligible. Sure. Because <laughs> it's just kind of like an extension of the same thing, almost. So last year's ceremony will obviously be remembered for the, the slap heard around the world, even though most of us didn't see it live. I thought the the three hosts did a pretty good job prior to the, that incident. This year, the Academy has returned to a more traditional approach with Jimmy Kimmel hosting. Any expectations for the, the broadcast? Um, I don't know. Last year, I did not like the ceremony last year. I thought it was really, even before the slap, I thought it had a really negative vibe okay. about it the whole night. I thought Regina Hall was great, but uh, the other two hosts I thought were a little divisive like i i just think movies should bring people together they should leave the political jokes out the country's already divided let's just like you know have a nice have a nice night where no one fights (laughs) you know just a good time for everybody Sure. It's yeah. probably one of the, the toughest jobs in entertainment because everyone's going <laughs> to nitpick your your, your hosting yeah. no matter... Uh, oh, I'm sure. It's, I think there's a lot of people who don't even want to do it. I read something, or maybe I heard it on the, the radio, that the first Oscar ceremony in 1929 was, was 15 minutes. 
funny. Yeah, it'll be uh, quite a bit longer tonight, probably. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Three plus hours. Um, they're always they're always running late, no matter how hard they try. I know. Isn't there a way to factor that? In? I guess <laughs> too. But. It's going to be fun watching tonight. Uh, Oscars aside, what were your, a couple of your favorite movies of the past twelve months? I guess All Quiet on the Western Front. Okay. I liked that one, and I did enjoy everything, everywhere, all at once. I, I liked The Fableman. How about you? For me, um, Tar. Uh, I, I mentioned uh, After Sun, which was the small indie film that Paul Mescal was uh, nominated for. And then my favorite film of the year wasn't nominated, and I think I, I read something that, that you wrote, and I know you're not a fan of it, but uh, Babylon was actually my, my favorite oh, film it? of the year. And, uh, well, I liked Amsterdam, and that was totally shut out. <laughs> right, David O. Russell's film. Uh, that was that was the thing, and it kind of goes back to what I started with, where you never know what's going to happen. I think everything, everywhere all at once comes out in April of 2022. Uh, critics love it, uh, but then looking ahead, uh, a lot of the film festivals were still to take place. People knew Spielberg had a movie coming out. People knew David O. Russell had a film coming out, uh, Damien Chazelle. So there was all this anticipation for some of those big names, uh, yeah. but you never know how the, the films will actually play out. And so, yeah, it was just interesting. It's not that... Uh, Fableman's isn't a, a well-done film. It just, I guess, didn't quite catch people's imaginations the way people thought it might. Yeah. Well, it'll it'll be fun watching tonight. Janet, thanks for, for making time to, to talk with us. You're welcome. That's Janet Arvia. She's the arts and culture editor for Rebellious Magazine. The 95th Academy Awards ceremony is tonight. If you're in the Chicago area, the ceremony starts at 7 p.m. It'll be on ABC Channel 7. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name's Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.